Welcome to SocialCast, the weekly podcast talking about enduring societal hurdles in the United States and how socialism offers a way past them. Social cast. I'm Derek. And I'm Lance. And today we're going to talk about food insecurity. Food insecurity is kind of a, a topic that everybody tries to talk about, but they misconstrue some things. So let's start by really clearly defining what we're talking about when we talk about food insecurity. The USDA defines food insecurity as a lack of consistent access to enough food for an active, healthy life. Now, this is different than hunger. You can be hungry and food secure because you just need to eat more food to get full. And for people who are experiencing food insecurity, this is a matter of, I've eaten all the food that I have and I am still hungry. And I do not have the resources to go and procure more food. Exactly. Now, it's important to note that there is no link whatsoever between food insecurity and poverty. There are millions of households in the United States who exist above the poverty line, but who regularly experience food insecurity. And this is because of the the competing priorities of our dollars. We have to provide food to be food secure, but we also have to pay for housing and we have to pay for our electricity and our gas and our water and our garbage. And so it is entirely possible to have money, so to speak, but still be food insecure. Absolutely. And I think I, I say this as someone who's never really experienced food insecurity myself, but I have definitely been in the position of I've paid my bills. I've made sure that my power is going to be on through to my next time that the bill drops. I've paid my rent and I have had $10 left to last me a week of eating, which, yes, that's a lot more than some people have at any given moment. And yes, I realize that it's absolutely doable and I've done it, but it is not a fun position to be in. And with that $10, you realize how, how far it does not go. You, you have to balance nutrient, nutrient lacking foods that you can get in abundance versus nutrient dense foods that are going to cost more money and not satisfy your hunger. I think that's a, a really important component of the conversation is that a, a lot of times people who have limited resources do turn to something like fast food and 
I think the the impetus for that decision is not only the financial consideration, because if we're being completely honest, yeah, I could probably buy the things to make a bunch of hamburgers for less than I would pay for the same number of hamburgers at McDonald's, but then I've got to make sure that I use all of that food before it goes bad. I've got to make sure that I have time to prepare that food. And we're talking about hamburger patties or just hamburger in a, a container. So this is meat that's going to have to be frozen so that it can save for longer periods of time. And so now it's not only do I have to have the time to prepare the food, but I have to plan ahead for how much time I'm going to have tomorrow because if I have to defrost this food, it's going to take 24 hours or so to do so. And also the expense incurred from freezing that food where you now have to make sure you don't have a lapse in power coverage so that your freezer remains functioning for however long it takes you to cook that food. I actually recently just had a Facebook memory pop up um, from, I want to say two or three years ago, it doesn't matter. Uh, where I was at work, and I was working the night shift, and the cafe that was still open um, had some grab-and-go sandwiches, some grab-and-go salads, and then their hot grill had, like, a grilled BLT, a cheeseburger, um, stuff kind of like that. And I was I was in the mood for a salad. I really wanted a salad. It was all I could think about all day. Don't ask me why. I'm not a salad person. But I really wanted a salad in that moment, so I went down to the cafe, and they had a Caesar salad. No chicken, just the lettuce, the cheese, the dressing, croutons, and a lemon wedge. $4.25. $4.25. If I had gotten a cheeseburger, $5. $5 for a cheeseburger? That also comes with a bag of chips. And th- I mean, this was a hospital cafe, so we're not talking, you know, the highest end food in the world, and we're not talking about, like, a typical grocery store or convenience store, but I could have gotten a cooked-to-order cheeseburger, which is not the greatest food, for just slightly more than I could have gotten a relatively, comparatively healthy salad. I don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> Small edit. Well, I, I think that is is a good illustration of the difference in cost between a, a lower cost protein, even though that hamburger cost more than the salad, the salad didn't have a protein in it. Not at all. And it did not, that salad did not satisfy hunger as well as a cheeseburger would have. It satisfied the craving in the sense that I wanted the crunchy, fresh salad. Did it make me not hungry for the rest of the night? And did I have to go and get a snack later on? No. And yes? Did you have to get a snack later on? Oh, yes, I did have to get a (laughs) snack later on, of course. Um, But it's, you know, you can... It's... Why is the healthier option almost nearly as expensive as a much heartier, not as healthy item that is not going to fill you, or that is going to fill you up a lot faster. Well, and that is just 
an example from the cafe in Single hospital. If you go to Wendy's, their salads are twice as much as a hamburger. Mm-hmm. So for what you're getting for for the amount of money that you're paying for that salad at Wendy's, you can get two or three or sometimes four or five, depending on which hamburger you're looking at, hamburgers. And that's going to, first of all, feed you better, but it's also going to be easier to split amongst multiple people. So if you're a single parent who is trying to feed their children after they've just gotten off work and they're on their way to an extracurricular activity, those those cheeseburgers for 99 cents at Wendy's are going to be much easier to distribute in the car while you're driving than a salad. Absolutely. And it will also go a lot farther. Those four or five hamburgers can go to four or five people, whereas the same salad, honestly, that salad is meant for one person, first of all. But at best, you could split it amongst two people. That, that's really the best you're looking at. And those are two very not hungry people. The, yeah, that those, are, those are two people that are, are looking for something maybe to snack on if you're splitting a salad that you get at a fast food restaurant. And that's also not to say that fast food salads or, or prepared salads in general are any healthier than their burgers or their sandwiches or whatever. But there is, there's vegetable content at least. So I want to, I want to talk a lot about numbers because this is going to be a really number heavy episode because food insecurity is one of the most studied phenomena in the United States of America and globally as well because hunger, malnutrition, starvation are all things that we we tend not to think a lot about, but that are much more prevalent than we think they are. And as such, there have been a lot of resources developed to study the causes, figure out how many people are affected, and also try to devise solutions. So let's, let's start with just the most basic number, 10.5% of U.S. households were food insecure in 2019. That is 13.7 million people food insecure. That's way too many. It gets more interesting as we go. Yes. So of those, of, of just U.S. households in general that experienced low food security, which is less food security than just being food insecure, 6.4% of U.S. households, or 8.3 million U.S. households, experienced low food security. 4.1%, or 5.3 million U.S. households, experienced very low food security. And it, it might sound like we're just narrowing our focus, but these are, are very clearly defined boundaries. Food insecure people, just regular food insecure, are people who might not know when or where their next meal is coming. Um, people experiencing low food security have even less certainty and are going maybe one to three days throughout the week 
without actually eating. And very low food security is people who the, the majority of the time, the overwhelming majority of the time, don't know where their next meal is coming from. I like breaking things down into subgroups, too. So of the households in the United States that have children, 13.6% of U.S. households with children experience food insecurity. Broken down by, by some other demographics, households with children headed by women, single women, experience food insecurity at a rate of 28.7%. So almost one in three single mother households experience food insecurity. 19.1% black, black non-Hispanic households experience food insecurity. And 15.6% of Hispanic households deal with food insecurity. So there are some very clear demographics that are more affected. By, by our system of food creation and distribution in this country. It, the data clearly shows that there is a strong... What's the word I'm looking for? Correlation? A strong sure. systemic discrimination against people of color and against women and usually when we start talking about those groups of demographics it's the rabbit i'm sorry she's uncontrollable if you hear noises in the background during this episode or the next few episodes honestly uh, be aware we're in a place that has a rabbit and some chickens and a brand new puppy so please just excuse our background noise there's literally 13 animals in this house right now <laughs> help me <laughs> um but when we lump these demographics together, it is typically when you add them all together, when you get the single black mother raising children, they are typically the most worst off. That's not a good phrase, but they no, are. That is exactly the phrase that I would have used. They are the most worst off people. They are going to get hit harder and more frequently than anyone else in any other demographic. By anything. Currently, black mothers are, are most affected by unemployment due to COVID because black mothers are also primarily in face-to-face -face jobs that have been either severely curtailed or eliminated completely. Um, there, there are so many pressures exerting upon black mothers specifically and also Hispanic mothers, white mothers, single women in general are, are constantly fighting the same types of systems of oppression and black people are fighting in entirely different systems of oppression but black women get all of those systems of oppression working against them. It was a slight derail. Sorry. Slight, but I think absolutely appropriate when we start discussing how something like food insecurity affects specific demographics is you don't want to look at each single compartmentalized demographic. You need to think of the people who hit 
multiple demographics and you have to think about how it's not you know just because they're black doesn't mean they're experiencing this but and not just because they're female they're experiencing this but because they are black and because they are female they have a significantly higher likelihood of experiencing x honestly i mean to this discussion obviously we're speaking to food insecurity but this whole series of episodes really that is just something we shall be keeping in mind absolutely back to the topic at hand though with food insecurity in our research for for this episode we found some some pretty interesting information about the states that experience the highest rates of food insecurity and this is again against a backdrop of what was it 10.5% is the US average for food insecurity so bear in mind as we're talking about these these next few things 10.5 is our average that's our baseline so anything greater than 10.5 is concerning and anything lower than 10.5 is something that we should obviously be trying to replicate. So 15% of rural households struggle with food security, which is something that I always find surprising when we're talking about the, the rural communities that are producing a lot of our agriculturally derived food. 15% of them are making food for us to eat, but don't have enough food for themselves to eat. It's almost as if the people who are producing our food do not actually own the means of production. Hmm. Isn't that weird? That's so bizarre. Something that never occurred to me before. Right. So the... I say so a lot. You say um a lot, and I say so a lot. I apologize. The states with the highest incidence of, of food insecurity, which is going to be well above the, the federal average, are as follows. New Mexico at 17.6%, Texas at 14.3%, Oklahoma at 15.2%, Arkansas at 17.5%, Louisiana 18.3%, Mississippi wins the, the hat for most food insecure population at 18.7%. Alabama is 18.1%. Kentucky is 17.3%. Ohio, 13.2%. West Virginia, 14.3%. And North Carolina, 15.9%. What is a common thread through all of those states? And this is where I'm going to start picking on specific political groups. Well, except for... One of those states, they're all generally conservative Republican strongholds. Absolutely. And what's also interesting is the one state that isn't, and I'm not speaking to the demographics of any of the other states right now, but the one state that is a consistently blue state amongst those also has the highest population or the highest percentage population of Native Americans and Hispanic and non-white Hispanics. And it also has some of the most agrarian rural communities in America. So we're seeing two groups of those demographics that you were speaking to. 
I don't actually know what state you're talking about. New Mexico. Oh, very good. And they have one of the highest percentages of food they do. care households. Not particularly surprising. Just given the, the play between the demographics and who is experiencing food insecurity in this country. New Mexico is a very interesting state within the United States of America. This is a weird nerd moment of mine. It's the the cities that you think of when you think of Al- of New Mexico, Albuquerque and Santa Fe specifically, are remarkably small towns. Albuquerque is, I believe, the largest city in uh, New Mexico. And it's only, I want to say, like, 120,000? It's it's smaller than Salem. Like, significantly smaller than Salem. And that's the largest city in the state. And most of the rest of the population lives either on reservations or in unincorporated rural areas. So now we're talking back to that rural demographic that we mentioned earlier who experiences... Food insecurity at 15% above, you know, 15%, which is above the national average. Stepping away for a a bit from specific percentages of, of people experiencing food insecurity... 45 million Americans receive SNAP benefits each month. For anybody that doesn't know what SNAP is, if you're not familiar, SNAP is the Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program, what we 40 years ago would have referred to as the Food Stamp Program. Um, 45 million Americans rely on SNAP benefits to create food security for their households. And what I think is interesting about that is that that represents a bit more than 10% of of the population of the United States. And there's very little overlap between the 10% of people that receive SNAP benefits and the 10% of people that are experiencing food insecurity. So just... To clarify my own self here, we're saying that people who receive SNAP benefits are not the same ones who are experiencing food insecurity to a point of exclusion. Yes, they are not necessarily the same groups. If if it were a Venn diagram, there would be a very small slice of the the pies that overlap. Um, But largely... The people receiving SNAP benefits are not the people that most need SNAP benefits, statistically. Uh, 22 million children rely on the free or reduced lunch program so that they can eat lunch five days a week when they're in school. That's a lot of, a lot of kids that lot of kids. Are, are coming from households that are food insecure, and that that probably shouldn't be particularly surprising because uh, 13.6% of households with children in the United States experience food insecurity, so that's 3% more than the national average of 10.5%. So if you, if you have a kiddo, 
you are 3% more likely to experience food insecurity. I mean, that makes absolute sense on most just basic arithmetic. You have more bodies to feed, but no way of procuring additional income. Absolutely. Is there anything else we want to talk about numbers-wise before we start launching into some of the other things we wanted to talk about today? I don't think so. Okay. So, there it is again. One of the, the biggest concerns for a lot of us who talk or, or just engage around the, the discussion of food insecurity are the health implications of, of low food security in, in various people. Children who experience food insecurity are more likely to develop asthma, to struggle with anxiety or depression, and they're more likely to perform poorly in school or physical activities. People who experience food insecurity are also more likely to fight with uh, or to struggle with malnutrition. Obviously. <laughs> Sorry, puppy distraction. Um, obviously, if you're not sure where your next meal is going to be coming from, that can lead to not having enough cal calorie intake. And it typically will lead to you choosing the cheapest food source available, and that's typically fast food or low-nutrient foods that require minimal, minimal preparation that while they will fill you up, they're not going to help sustain a healthy and balanced diet, which is going to result in vitamin deficiency. It will result in mineral deficiencies. And the, the health implications to malnutrition are infinite. I mean, our body so much relies on what we are taking in, mostly in the form of food. It, it's, it's hard to think of something that is not exacerbated by malnutrition. Absolutely. Um, another factor to deal with, with another factor that people who struggle with food insecurity have to deal with is a higher rate of obesity. Mm when you don't know where your food is going to come from and you don't have a consistent source of food, your body will hoard whatever nutrients and whatever calories you do get, which is going to take the form of weight gain, usually in the form of fat. And as this goes on and on and on, you put on more and more weight in the form of fat. And it just kind of builds on itself and builds on itself. And that habit and that routine, or lack thereof, becomes an ingrained, ongoing habit. And when we talk about food insecurity and the health implications of food insecurity, it ties pretty directly back to our conversations about healthcare. Because... We're, we're talking about a group of people who are already struggling to meet their dietary needs. 
in a way that keeps their bodies healthy. And so then they become trapped in this cycle of medical debt, trying to solve the problems that their their food insecurity has either outright caused or just exacerbated. Um, and that, in turn, leads to even less resources available to procure food that is nutrient-dense and supports living an active, healthy lifestyle. So there's... I know I've said this a ton of times in, in these episodes, but there is no way to disentangle any one topic that we talk about from all of the other topics that we talk about. They are all part of a giant mass of things waiting for solutions. Well, I think it comes down to one of the fundamental tenets of socialism, and that is that... And that is that if you cannot live without X, X should be universally provided for the person. And that goes for healthcare, that goes for shelter, and it goes for food. And for that matter, it goes for electricity. And, uh, I mean, everything we have talked about to this point is all stuff we have, we have said, everyone needs this to exist in our society. Of course, once people have the resources to buy their food, there's still the constant challenge of finding healthy food to buy. The accessibility of food is such a multifaceted problem. It's like looking at a big, ugly diamond. You have the, the typical sense of accessibility where maybe you don't have the ability to drive a car or you don't have the luxury and privilege of driving a car either. And maybe you don't have the time because you work two or three jobs to go spend two hours grocery shopping. But then there's also physical disabilities that can get in the way. There's a lot of other factors. And there's also distance. You know, if you live too far away from a grocery store, that is going to impede your ability to routinely acquire food. There's a, I, there's a word for that, right? Yes. Like we have a name for that phenomenon. It's called food deserts. Or were you thinking of a different word? No. no. Okay. I'm, I'm just, I'm picturing that. Take a second and picture a food desert. And, and imagine what that would look like. Here's a pro tip. Just pull up a map of East Portland between 102nd and 181st. There's like three grocery stores in the whole area. And yes, if you have a vehicle, honestly, you can probably get to one of them. But a lot of people out here do not have a vehicle. And a lot of people out here are working two to three jobs. And going to the grocery store is an investment of time and strength. And also this is now the year of our Lord 2021 in these unprecedented times, going to the grocery store is a health hazard. It is, it's one thing that my husband and I have 
compromised on because I still have to go to work in person, whereas he does not. So I am excused from going to the grocery store. He takes that off. I'm not sure if that's really relevant, but that is a factor to think about in this discussion is if you're immunocompromised or if you are at high risk of the pandemic, going to the grocery store can be a life... It can be a life-threatening experience. Thank you for filling in my words. You're welcome. <laughs> I have a small stroke. I feel like a lot of times when we're talking about food deserts, we get caught up in focusing on these urban landscapes that are devoid of of grocery stores. Like you just described that section of, of East Portland that has tons of square mileage and three grocery stores. But the, the concept of a food desert doesn't stop at urban boundaries. Absolutely not. It also extends into rural communities. I remember growing up in Silverton is a really good example. I had friends who lived, you know, I lived literally across the street from the grocery store. I could hear the recycling, the, the can returns. I could hear those going all hours of the day. It was really annoying. But there were people who would have to plan a monthly trip to drive the half hour down from the hills around town to go to the grocery store and they would get two or three carts full of food and trek back up into the mountains because it was just so much of a time suck. So when you have communities that are so far outside of our city limits, but not large enough in themselves to sustain a, a serious grocery store, you get a food desert. And I think that goes also tying back to our rural communities being at a higher risk of food insecurity is because these people live so far outside of urban centers. And I, I, you know, when we say urban centers, we think, oh, downtown Portland, skyscrapers, big freeways. Uh, we're talking towns of three or 4,000 people usually will have one or two grocery stores. But any smaller than that, or you get, you know, significantly far away from that, and you have thousands of people who don't have ready access to a grocery store. And another component to food deserts is not just grocery stores, but also fast food and even sit-down restaurants. If, if all three of those things are lacking, you don't have a means of getting food in a convenient and accessible manner. Do we have time for a, a small jaunt? Oh, of course. Um, I rec when I moved <coughs> to Denver, actually, we drove from Seattle all the way down to Denver. Do not recommend. Do not recommend at all. And I remember driving through these communities that were three or four houses on the side of the freeway. And, you know, the last exit that I recall seeing was at least five miles before, and the next one, I was at least another five miles, if not more, and not a single business in sight. I'm thinking, how on earth do these people get their groceries? 
how do these people get any sort of food without it being... And I, there was one spot I recall where it was literally two hours since we had seen the last anything. And it was another two hours before we saw anything. And along the way, there were several groups of just two or three, maybe four or five houses on the side of the road. And I just kept thinking, how on earth are these people living all the way out here without access to food? And I understand to an extent some of that is choice and some of that is the willingness to accept that as a cost of living in that setting. But I also recall seeing closed storefronts. I recall seeing closed restaurants and businesses that had clearly at one point been established, but which had closed down, however recently it may have been. There all all across the country for the last year especially but for the last decade i would say we've seen a, a gross reduction in smaller independent businesses like family restaurants or like independently operated grocery stores and this this part of, of the conversation. Thank you for this story because it dovetails kind of spectacularly into the next thing that I want to talk about when we talk about food insecurity. And that is that it's like so many other things that we've talked about, completely manufactured. Absolutely manufactured. So at, at this point, everyone in the country should be aware of the, the power of a good winter storm. Oh, have mercy. A couple weeks ago, the entire country was affected by pretty historic winter storms. The entire state of Texas went berserk because like 30% or something of their electricity generation facilities went offline because they hadn't been weatherized and couldn't stay warm enough to create electricity. And that affected, obviously, all of the people in Texas on a, a deeply personal level, but also on a, on a providing groceries for people to buy a level. And this is something that we saw manifest hideously here in Portland. There was a, a Fred Meyer store, which is a brand owned by Kroger. So for people that aren't listening from the Pacific Northwest, if you're not familiar with Fred Meyer, you are probably familiar with Kroger or Vons or QFC, I think is QFC one of their is other another brands. one. King Supers is another really big one. Go to the Kroger website. You can see it all. And you can see, they have like 50 some odd brands that they have bought. And I do want to mention just really quickly, because I have worked for Kroger before, they don't want you to know when they buy all these regional grocery lines, they don't want you to know that they're Kroger. That is their marketing ploy. That is their tactic. They rely on these homegrown names. You and I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. We know Fred Myers. It's Freddy's. You go there for everything. It's a little bit more expensive, but you have the benefit of everything in one spot. Literally, it's a, a chain that was marketed as your one-stop shop. You can Absolutely. get clothes, you can get games, and, you can and, get TVs and groceries. And decades, 
decades before Walmarts started to take over the country. Decades before any of that. Um, and Kroger came in and bought them. And Kroger has done this countrywide. There is no state that does not have Kroger in it, to my knowledge. I Maybe California. I could be wrong on that. I doubt I am, but... No, because they were closing stores during the pandemic. Yes, you yeah. are correct. They so are yes, definitely Kroger there. does have stores in California. I don't know what their name is, but anyways. Back, back, back to the to... winter storm. Yes. What we saw play out here in Portland was the worst manifestation of capitalism in a food supply system. And the... Let me just set the stage. This specific Fred Meyer was without power for four or five days. And there came a point where their upper level management was like, we're not going to be able to save this refrigerated and frozen food because it's been without power for so long. Throw it in the dumpsters. And there was so much of this food that they had to order dumpsters. There were two dumpsters full. And when we're talking about these dumpsters, these aren't the ones that you see outside your local 7-Eleven, which have just the two flaps that open up. We're talking about the big ass trailer sized dumpsters that have doors on one end that open like French doors. I think another really important component to set the stage here is that the owners of these stores were told by city officials ahead of time, we are not going to have power back on before you will need to have your food disposed of or gotten rid of. So they knew the deadline was coming. That is a very important that, thing to note. Because, because I am, there's another part that plays into this. So... At the same time that Kroger was throwing away these two trailer truck-sized dumpsters of food, every other grocery store in the area that was affected that wasn't Kroger-owned, because Kroger didn't lose any other stores for any important amount of time during the winter storm, every other grocery store chain that was affected donated the food that they had that they knew they weren't going to be able to save to organizations that would make sure that that food got to people that were going to go hungry without it. Another important factor that I think a lot of people kind of glossed over because we don't think about it, uh, and it's certainly something I did not think of before this particular storm because someone who lives in the Midwest and deals with this routinely um, brought to my attention, they threw out food because they could not keep it frozen. During a historic ice storm, they could have just set it outside and brought it back in. But that would have required a lot of resources that a company isn't going to want to provide yes. just to keep their food safe. Absolutely. What they did do instead was throw away these two trailer truck sized dumpsters of food and then invariably people noticed that this food was sitting outside the, the store and people who were hungry started coming and taking food. They started taking lunch meats. They started taking sliced cheeses. They started taking whatever was in these dumpsters that was available that was going to nourish their bodies. And Fred Meyer responded by calling the police. 
They called the Portland Police Bureau. They had officers come down with weapons to keep people away from this food that they had already thrown in the dumpster because that is how capitalism works. Capitalism doesn't care if you're hungry. Cap capitalism doesn't care if you're starving or if you die because you haven't had enough to eat for so long. Capitalism only cares about making as much money off of each of us as it possibly can. And that is why we have to fundamentally reimagine our food distribution systems and look at food as a human right. Absolutely. And I think another thing to mention, because obviously we are Team ACAP, thousand percent. There was so much else that those cops could have been doing. Mm -hmm. I am absolutely appalled that anyone had... I mean, at that point, you, you're you exhausted by the audacity of everything that's happening. But at that point, it's like, what possessed the mind of these officers to say that defending this dumpster of thrown out food from hungry people was more important than guiding traffic at an intersection that had had their lights knocked out? That was more important than checking on people who rely on oxygen tanks and respirators and ventilators to live that have to be powered at all times who live in houses that are without power at this time. Those officers could have been doing good things and they chose not to. And it might not have been the specific officers that were on site at the grocery store that were making that decision. They were just following orders. But as we learned at the end of World War II, even Nazis didn't get away with saying, I was just following orders. If you're following an order that is wrong, you shouldn't be following that fucking order. Part of your responsibility. She's too loud. <laughs> Part of the responsibility that anyone who takes the vow or an oath to uphold an order... Part of that responsibility is knowing when the order is wrong and immoral and when to stand up and say, no, I will not do this. Punish me as you may see fit. I don't know what else to talk about here. We could talk about gardening and if we don't like it, we Ooh. can chop it off. No, let's just talk about gardening because gardening presents a really good opportunity to directly affect food security for yourselves or the people around you. And I have the luxury of owning my home, or at least I pay my rent to a bank instead of another person. So technically my name is on the deed, so I can do to my yard whatever I want to do. And that means I have a lot of areas of my yard devoted to gardening. So during the summer, during the growing season, I don't buy vegetables at the grocery store. I eat the zucchini and the tomatoes and the tomatillos and the potatoes and the onions and the garlic that comes out of my yard. Honestly, I still, it is presently early March. I harvested garlic in October and I'm still using it. I do not experience food insecurity, not just because of my income and my accessibility of food and my ability to drive, I literally grow food in my backyard. Because I also have the time to do so. I have the knowledge, the physical ability to do so. 
And there are so many ways that people can be supplementing their, their food supply, even people who live in apartments, even people who have a shared housing situation. Almost anyone who has secure shelter has the ability to, even in a small capacity, grow their own food. Clearly, probably not to the extent of you aren't buying fresh vegetables from April till November, but you can probably grow a few extra tomatoes to throw into food so you have some fresh, vitamin-rich food. You can be growing... Potatoes are so remarkably easy to grow. It, you need two two-gallon buckets and you're done. That's all you need. And those are fantastic ways to get full, is just bake a potato, fry it, whatever. Don't give me that face. Potatoes are life. I don't like potatoes as much as you do. That's, I don't know who <laughs> you are as a person. But what what Lance is saying is is absolutely true. For those of us who, regardless of whether we're buying or renting, have space in our yard, it is remarkably easy to make it so that we can grow vegetables, to make it so that we can grow fruit. I, in, in the house that I rent, we have a fig tree, an apple tree, grape vines. So we have access to fruits already. And one of the things that I have been working on in all of my spare time is throwing together a front yard food garden initiative for my neighborhood. And this is something that anybody can participate in. All we all all I'm looking for is just folks who want to plant food in their front yard and then we can work out how we want to distribute that however we need to i i personally am choosing front yards because we have a lot of unhoused neighbors and i know that they struggle significantly more than i'm ever going to with food insecurity and i want to create a situation where if it's the middle of July, they're walking down my sidewalk, there are tomatoes there. And if they're hungry, they can just take a tomato and eat a tomato. Well, and and to build on that, it's... Honestly, I'm... You know, everyone has their personal taste. I'm not going to just grow up and grab a tomato. Which is why I have three fruit trees in my front yard that, again, I have the luxury of owning my home. So I have decided I'm going to put trees that literally bear ready-to-eat fruit in my unfenced front yard that is frequently walked by any number of people housed and unhoused and I have a cherry tree an apple tree and a peach tree and they're all you don't really even have to leave the street to grab food off of them and do I care if anyone grabs an apple if they're hungry no please do that's what I planted them for like and when, when I've talked to people about this idea that I have for my neighborhood front yard food garden project, that's that's something that a lot of people have pushed back on. Well, if I'm going to plant this food and I'm going to grow this food, I don't want other people taking it. Okay, then use your backyard. Yeah. It's not hard. All of us can make decisions like this that are ways to make... Our, our specific food situation and this, the food situation for people around us, even if they're not strangers, we can still grow a bunch of potatoes and hand them out to people. 
Absolutely. And we can even... Again, I always think about the people... Like, when I lived in Kent and I had a studio apartment and I still had a little pot on my little, like, four-foot-by-four-foot patio, I had a little pot out there and I had fresh herbs and green onions. So it wasn't anything of real nutritional value, but it was stuff where I could go to the store and I could get potatoes and I could get pasta and I can add a small pinch of these fresh herbs and it's an entirely new dish. It's flavorful, it's fresh, and it's something I want to eat even though it only cost me a couple dollars to put together. You know, it's it's things like that where maybe your snap benefits are going to the bulk bland things like pasta, rice, and potatoes. Your staples. Your staples. Things that maybe are nutritionally beneficial and that are going to fill you up, but you're not going to have a good time eating them because they're bland. And nobody likes eating food that doesn't taste good. So even if all you're doing is planting some fresh herbs, even in your kitchen window. Absolutely. You can make a difference for yourself that way. And for for people who are living in apartments who maybe have just a small patio or a balcony, there are vertical growing options. You can find them online. You can find them at Ikea. You can build them yourself. You can... There's, there's lots of different ways to create a structure that grows vertically instead of horizontally. So when... When we talk about vertical agriculture, what we're talking about is stacking crops on top of crops on top of crops and building like a skyscraper of crops instead of having everything laid out and taking up miles upon miles of space. And you can scale that down to just enough space for you. You can grow tomatoes in a hanging basket. You can grow potatoes in a tub apparently yes. or a bucket um garlic grows really easily onions grow really easily same same kind of setup you don't need a whole lot of space to make these things and potatoes and onions while they are staples and they can be by themselves bland those are things that do have a lot of the nutrients that the human body needs and, and i think there's there's enough flexibility in home gardening and in growing your own food that you can account for someone who maybe doesn't have the ability to cook food with heat. So maybe you're limited to greens. You're limited to lettuce, arugula, um, mustard greens are a fantastic example. Um, You can get a lot of nutrients from kale and spinach. You can get a lot of flavor from fresh herbs and from mustard greens. Um, You can still... Hey... Stop that. You can still have a beneficial garden that is providing you with nutrient-dense foods that don't have to be prepared with a heating implement of some sort. You don't have to limit yourself to, oh, well, I want to grow zucchini, but I don't have the means to cook zucchini. Although, if you do have the means to grow zucchini, absolutely do it. It is the biggest payoff crop ever a single seed and you have 30 pounds of fruit for the entire summer and that's the other thing about growing your own fruits and vegetables very frequently you might have to invest 
at the very beginning in seeds or starts, but then after that, you can harvest your own seeds. I am on my third generation of potatoes that I bought when I very first started my garden. And I actually did go to the garden center, but you can use potatoes from the grocery store just as easily. And I put those potatoes in the ground, and I've harvested them, and whatever I don't eat by the time it's... or by the time it is time to plant again, whatever's left goes back in the ground and makes more potatoes. I'm on my... this is my third time replanting zucchini from seeds that I gathered from the last season. There is, like Derek said, there's a lot... or there can be a lot of initial investment... But it can be done cheaply. You can get supplies at, um, like, Habitat for Humanity or other um, low-cost options. You can, um, you know, you can ask for stuff from neighbors. Or you can work together with your neighbors to kind of come together. And Maybe you don't have the resources on your own, but if you pool your resources with another person, you can come up with something together. And that's a, a really good point, because anytime we're talking about socialist-based solutions to these, these problems that we're facing, there, there are always ways to work together. One of the things that I'm trying to get dialed in is a discount at the Lowe's close to my neighborhood, so that any of my neighbors that want to participate in this food garden program can get a, a discounted price for any supplies for building planter boxes or raised garden beds, soil, whatever they need. I also learned something... <clears throat> Sorry, I had spicy food for lunch. It's not COVID, I promise. Um, something I learned two years ago, actually. Uh, because I asked a pretty specific question where I asked, you know, why is it that we can't buy seeds? Why is it we can't buy starts with our food stamps? And, well, I got just, I, I got painted as a silly goose because you can. Wait, you can buy seeds with SNAP benefits? You can. You can also, so you can buy them with SNAP benefits. I learned. I, I Not at all to... retailers. Like, you can't go to, like, Portland Nursery and go swipe your EBT. I just need you to hold on for a second because I legitimately didn't know that. And that <laughs> I didn't either. Yeah. I didn't know that either. And then my sister-in-law, who is on Snap, she was like, because I asked very point blank. I'm like, why can't you buy these things with Snap benefits? Because you're literally growing food. It's a much better return on your investment. And she just point blank back, you can and so my mind was blown, and now yours is blown. I had no idea. I, um, and, and I'm sure this is very specific to individual retailers, and it's probably not specific to all SNAP programs in all states, so investigate your own jurisdictions. Um, but even if you're not a SNAP recipient, because like you said, not everyone who deals with food insecurity is, dealing, is a SNAP recipient, the dollar store sells seed packets... I'm not saying that you're going to get a lot of seeds, but honestly, you only need three or four seeds. True story. Like, I bought a bunch of seeds this season to get all my vegetables kick-started, and I don't know what I'm going to do with 4,000 kale seeds. That was Did you order from one of those internet bulk sites? So, no. Like, it's an established, reputable... 
quite. <laughs> I it was is... I was looking into this not long ago, and for like twenty dollars, you can order twenty thousand <laughs> food seeds. <laughs> no, this was um. Who did I buy this from? I don't remember the exact brand, and I'm not going to say that on a podcast. Um, but the smallest quantity you could order of this one particular kale variety was 4,000. And I'm like, okay, well, I definitely want to plant a variety of kale, so I guess I'll buy them, and I'll just have kale seeds in ad infinitum. So, like, I have... I think I have 12 starts growing right now. Goodness. Yeah, 12 out of 4,000. <laughs> um, literally, like, generations worth of kale. That actually, that comes back to another objection I often hear when I suggest gardening and growing your own food as a means to supplement your food supply is, okay, but I live somewhere where the cold season is three months or six months long, or, okay, that's great for the summer, but what about winter when, you know, food stops growing? There are plants that grow in the winter months that you can eat. I have, I literally made food the other night, and I went out to my backyard and I trimmed, I clipped off some green onions for it. Because onions have to go through a winter spell to grow. Um, uh, what are they called? The cruciferous vegetables, also known as the brassicas, which are your broccoli, your cauliflower, your kale, your mustard greens, a whole bunch of vegetables are better after a couple weeks of a good cold spell, because the cold helps the plant turn some of its nutrients into sugar, so they're sweeter and they taste better. Which, if you're not a fan of kale, and you're not a fan of Brussels sprouts, and you're not a fan of broccoli, if something makes it taste better, do it. And, and those are things that, like, right now, I have collard greens and I have mustard greens growing in my backyard. And yes, they were growing in there when we had our big ice storm, and they are bigger and better than they were before. So these there are foods that you can grow during the winter, and there are foods that you can grow that you can harvest and store into the winter months. Um, like I said earlier, my garlic. I'm still using my garlic that I grew in my backyard. I think it's really important to, to note that you don't have to know everything to start growing food. You can pool knowledge with your family, your friends, your neighbors. If you have access to the internet, even if you're just going to the library, you can look and see what kind of plants are going to grow in your specific climate in your state at specific times of the year that would be beneficial to your personal food supply. Um. To bounce off of that, I think a really there there's some really fantastic resources. One, local Facebook groups. I have obviously I'm a big garden nut. I have several garden groups I'm part of. My absolute favorite is my local one because I can say, Hey, I've got this happening, what's going on? And within minutes I have someone saying, Oh, that happened to me three years ago. Here's how you can fix it, or how here's how you can do better. Join those groups, dialogue with the members, and ask, like, hey, I've got very limited space, I have very limited resources, I want to do X, what do you suggest? And it, obviously I can't speak to every single Facebook group on the planet, but the one I'm in is so positive and is so welcoming, and s these are people who are so happy to talk about gardening, because it is sort of a, a dying... Art. Art. It's an art. It's, honestly, it's a form of witchcraft. 
Um, <laughs> you're use, you're taking the power of the sun to pull nutrients out of the ground with magical hydraulic presses. It's it's really fun, actually. I'm sorry, I'm nerding out. Um, <laughs> but that's one fantastic resource. Another one, especially if you are in a more rural or a more disconnected area, check your state universities for us. Um, we have two major state universities, University of Oregon and Oregon State University. And for us here in Oregon, Oregon State University is our go-to agricultural university. They do um, timber sciences, they do agricultural sciences, they do um, all sorts of different horticultural and botanical programs. And they are the ones who run the Master Gardener program. They're the ones who run the Garden Extension Service. So whenever there's something that we need a scholastic, educated opinion on something, we go to our local OSU Extension Service with our questions. So they're another fantastic and free resource. That's the most important part that I was just going to, to highlight, is that usually those those university systems are more than happy to share the information that they have for free. It's, it's the same with a lot of scientific papers. Um, the people that make them are just excited that people want to read them. They're not going to be worried about getting money for it. Um, I was actually recently looking at the requirements to become a master gardener because everyone keeps telling me, hey, you should become a master gardener. I'm not going to, first of all. I don't like the idea of master gardeners because I don't like qualifying hobbies. Hmm. Um, but anyways, a huge... Com like, there's sitting classes I actually have to go to and it's like, or the history of bonsai over the last 300 years. Um, but a huge component of it is community service and going to... Um, farmers markets and going to ag festivals and going to these communities and running a booth and just answering people's questions or talking about whatever is part of that program and you have to get a pretty significant chunk of hours for this one it was like 700 hours of community service and education and I, first of all no um, but also like these are people who are trying to become something within these professions and part of becoming that something is sharing knowledge with other people. So these are definite, fantastic, and free resources. Do you have any other than big things you want to talk about for food insecurity? Seize the means of production. That's all. Which I think that is what we just spent 20 minutes talking about. Yeah. It's just seize the means of production, grow your own food. Thank you for joining us for this week's Social Cast. Social Cast publishes a new episode every Sunday, so make sure to add us to your podcast library to be notified of new content. Social Cast is available on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Join the conversation with us on social media. Find us on Facebook under Social Cast Podcast and on Twitter at Social Cast Pod. If you're interested in supporting SocialCast, you can find us on patreon.com forward slash socialcast. <laughs>